Hey, what's going on, guys? Welcome back to another episode. How you living? How you living? Pretty good. Pretty good. I mean, I'm not gonna lie. I'm feeling very blessed because uh, just a few days ago, I had food poisoning for the first time in my life. Oh. Man, I'm telling you, it feels good to be alive. I'm ha like, I, like it feels good to be alive. So I'm happy to be here with y'all. Man, I have food poisoning twice in my life. <clears throat> and so the moment I heard you mention food poison, my brain just like went to those two moments. And I was like, God, that was awful. That's probably the worst yeah. I ever felt, man. Bro, bro. I'm glad you get that because it's, it's no joke having food poisoning. I had no idea. Like, I always heard about it, right? I heard about it, like, you know, and honestly, I hadn't, you know, I'm not going to get graphic, but I hadn't got, I haven't got sick <laughs> like that, you know, since maybe like holiday, you know what I'm saying? Drinking and whatnot. Bruh, bruh. No, what was the what, what was the origin? Was it like a restaurant or like? Man, I, don't, like... I I don't want to to point fingers, but it <laughs> this this is what it seems like. <laughs> it seems like the culprit may have been Taco Bell. I don't uh, know. Um, and and, and I don't faithful. Yeah, you know what? <laughs> and 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 you know you know I, you know I I I fuck with Taco Bell. I'm not gonna lie, I mess with them, but uh, I don't know. After that, I, I'm not so sure about that. I'm not so sure yeah. about. That. Yeah, no, it's hard to pull in the drive through and, and not remember that last time they got oh, you. Nah, bro. Oh. No, bro. It's going to be a while. It's going to be a while. So is, uh, um, is food poisoning just like a stomach bug, I'm assuming? Oh, you haven't had it? Nah, we ain't going to wish oh, you palm. Oh, oh, you don't want that, man. Nah, yeah, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not saying I care to empathize. I, I, I just care to understand <laughs> a little bit. That's what it is. Yeah, bro. Look, honestly, bro, it's basically, you, you know, you eat something, right? You wake up the next day, and you just you know you can't hold nothing down, bro. Mm -hmm. Like like you first of all you wake up and you know it's different. You feel different. You mm -hmm. don't know what it is at first, and then you you know you get sick, and then like so then you're like all right, all right, I got sick a little bit. Then you, you try to get like maybe eat a little bit, you get sick again. You like okay, 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 I might be straight now. You drink a little bit of water, get sick, man. It's just not good, bro. It's just not good, bro. And so I had to go get. I actually went and got um. I was dehydrated because I couldn't hold anything down. So I went and got an IV. Um, that helped me uh, stay hydrated. But, man, it wasn't good, man. It wasn't good. So I'm great. Like, long story short, uh, invest in your health. And I'm happy to be here. <laughs> Big facts, man. Well, yeah, let's, uh, let's hop into it. Bradley, you were mentioning uh, Harlem Capital came out yeah. with a, a report about black history or the history of black VC. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they, they it's so in this uh in this kind of deck that they put together, it's about like nine slides, but essentially it just provides a timeline starting back into like the nineteen forties up to like, you know, today of how the industry has just kind of evolved. Um and how, you know, us as black folks we we fit into the capital markets. But um yeah, I kinda wanna just wanna quickly go through that because I think some of the facts and just understanding how things um just for they, they pointed out a few different policy things that just led to the evolution of the space, which I feel like people need to know as well. But um, yeah, so the first kind of like VC firm uh, was first created in 1946. Um, and so at that time, I guess, you know, just in US history, that most capital that was going into private companies was just coming from, you know, rich individuals type stuff. But what changed here was this organization believed that institutional uh, in, institutional investors wanted to get in 
and that, you know, they as like VCs are having their own kind of business that's just focused on providing investments. Uh, they also could provide like that hands-on help as like a service. And so it wasn't until 12 years later in 1958 where the federal government actually institutionalized and made it legal to quote unquote have a VC firm. Um, and that, that was really huge just because over the course of the next few years, they, they realized very early, because uh, once again, we got to remember in the 1950s, 1960s was civil rights time. Um, yeah, black folks were not getting no money. And so they had the small business uh, administration create the Minority Enterprise Small Business Investment Company um, in the 1960s. Um, and their whole thing was just to invest in black companies. Um, obviously, that still wasn't, you know, going as as, as it planned. But uh, high level, some of the things that this uh, just kind of hits on is, um, yeah, this I found this very intriguing. So one of the first black owned VC firms uh, to actually make a profit was in 1982. Um, and then there was a lady, Joanne Price of Fairview Capital. I had never heard of that, but she was one of the first black women fund managers uh, ever. And she raised over, uh, she raised over hundred million dollars back in 1994, uh, which is quite impressive. And then I, I, I hadn't been very familiar with uh, Base 10, but I guess they're the world's largest black owned um, VC firm with 1.3 under management. Um, but yeah, those were those were just some of the high level stuff. I, I guess y'all want me to go down some of the stuff on like the timeline. By, by the way, one point three with a B. One one point three with a B. Yes. Yeah, one point three with a B. I just want to make sure the listeners understand. Okay, go continue, continue. Yes, it, there's a little bit of controversy around like, do, does he consider himself black? Because I guess he was born in Spain and he happens to be Nigerian, and so some people have argued yeah. he's struggling right. to say. Yeah, we understand that. <laughs> we understand. But a win is a win. Yes, yes, we understand. Okay, <laughs> got you. Um, yeah. So basically, this uh, where the report starts to get very intriguing is it talks about like the 1970s. So I guess during this period of time, a lot of black VC fund managers felt pressured to be like overly selective, uh, just when it comes to selecting those companies because they felt like they weren't going to be able to go raise capital again if they weren't successful. I feel like that's like a common thing today, even with founders. <laughs> Go ahead. We we see that today. We see that today, actually. That, that that's still a thing today. Uh, we 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 often, um, uh, if if you look at some of the trends, and this is just anecdotal. I like this is like I'll just take my anecdotal experience from uh, from myself, but also talking to other founders, especially all uh, black founders. Um, you know, uh, VCs are tend to be yeah more critical of their you know potential investments um and sometimes that could uh be a good thing because maybe they you know are making sure that you know the people that they're investing in are uh sharp and have the, the uh, a better chance of like you know ultimately getting like better results but on the other hand um that that same you know criticalness can uh have them making the same mistakes other firms make which is overlooking founders because they don't fit a certain um a pattern or a certain type of, you know, uh, uh, personality, et cetera, et cetera. No, a hundred, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. It's, it's, I don't know. It, it, it's just very intriguing. Um, just because I think Dre has talked a little bit about like the incentives VCs have, it kind of makes sense. Um, but it's also like when you're trying to solve that problem, the problem you're solving is diversity investing. It also doesn't make sense for you to be like overly that critical, but um, yeah, oh, just to 
I would even cha- I would even challenge is like is that really the actual problem? Because like even companies will <clears throat> we all know like over the last ten years, at least in the valley beyond the valley as well, but there's been like the whole initiative of diversity and inclusion, right? And companies hiring diversity and inclusion officers and hiring, you know, head of people to like specialize in like this diversity initiative. It's like, you know, companies say they care, but do they really care? Right? Like again, these institutional investors say they care, but do they really care? Because if they really care, then perhaps I'm not saying no problems would exist. There will always be some problems, but the problem set will look a little bit different. So I don't know. I find it hard to believe that they really care because I don't know when people really care about things, the way they approach the the urgency to change it, it's just, it looks a little bit different. No, a hundred percent. And and yeah, when you talk about that, like that urgency to change it, I think the reason why people tend to move like that is because it's personal. And so it's not until these high level diversity and inclusion initiatives, it's not to knock anybody um, do your job. I don't know much about it, just but do your job. But at the end of the day, until quote unquote, for the people who are causing the problem that we're 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 trying to solve at these organizations, feel it in their personal lives. Hmm. What does it? What? What? Why would they care if it, in the workplace? If you're hmm. not having it, like it, it don't take a rocket science, like. In their personal lives, where's the diversity and inclusion? And mm-hmm. businesses are built off the beliefs that you carry for your personal life. It's not like you separate who you are outside of the office from who you are in. No, it's actually the opposite. You bring who, hopefully you're bringing your full self into work. Isn't that the reason why, you know, they're calling for it to be authentic? Isn't that one of the principles or something? Yeah, yeah, authenticity. <laughs> so... so. <laughs> Yeah, but not no. game. <laughs> <laughs> go ahead, go ahead. But yeah, not to get too uh, too sidetracked. But um, yeah, this was very interesting too. I think I was talking about this above the call. But um, yeah, in the 1970s, uh, there were two guys. So Terry Terry Jones and his name was Herbert Wilkins. They both graduated from Harvard uh, MBA school. Um, but essentially, they started a VC firm called Syndicate Communications, where it's primarily focused on uh, owning media, right? And they started it in uh, Maryland. Out of all places, they started in Maryland, uh, at least when you think of tech. And it went on to become like one of the first uh, and most successful black venture capital firms. Um, but they invested in like BET, Radio One, a huge uh, a, a number of like other media networks. And over the course of their funds, just like lifetime, they've invested over 150 companies that have either went on to IPO or exit. Um, bringing them back a return of over ten billion dollars, and it's like, bro, we—I ain't never heard of this. Mm. Who these? Mm. Who do? Who these? Because that's not easy. Mm. That's not easy, and I have that longevity. But that was in the nineteen seventies, and then uh, in the nineteen eighties, uh, kind of what I guess they're hitting at here is when um, pension funds. I guess this was really big for venture capital because in nineteen seventy eight. Um, there's a regulatory change that allowed pension funds to consider venture capital uh, uh, as an investment class. And so right after that, the amount of money poured in and the total number of VC funds, I guess, you know, that fit that minority uh, kind of classification went from 47 uh, in the late 1970s to uh, 71 in 1980, uh, 1982 and then to 113. So it looked like as as, as, as funds could be brought in from different places, 
we started to see uh, some growth there. And I guess I, this is a question that I would just throw to y'all too, because if we're thinking about it, um, yeah, the, the ways to go about getting that capital uh, has also grew to where I think individuals, um, if you have a little bit more money, have an opportunity to pitch in. And, you know, I think a lot of these early fund managers, I've started to see kind of go like the syndicate route and things of that nature. Um, so what role do you think regulatory uh, uh, and policy changes play in the growth of, you know, just black venture capital? I'm curious from your perspective. I, the first thing that comes to my mind is just accessibility, right? Um, I think historically before some of the latest SEC laws change, I think you kind of already alluded to, it was just difficult. Like if you had extra capital and you wanted to deploy it in this, you know, in this asset class, like how would you have done it? Right. Cause part of, part of it is not even just having the money, but part of it is having access to the deals themselves. Right. Mm. Like you can have a lot of capital, but we also know this is a relationship game. This is a boys club, right? Like that's just what it is. Although there are women in the game, it is still primarily a boys club. And so when you want to get into the hottest deals and, and sometimes deploy that capital, it's, it's, it's tough to do, even if you do have the money. So first of all, I just think in terms of the role of the government, they, they certainly can't help with deal flow because they can't. I mean, I, I guess they could, but we wouldn't want them to set regulation on who can get into deals and who can't. Right. I don't think we want the government to operate at that level. But I do think the government should trust people um, to make some of their own financial decisions in some of these better performing asset classes or asset classes that weren't necessarily open to everybody. And so venture is one of those that are starting to become open to everybody uh, in different ways and manifest, manifest in different ways. So let's unpack that because I mean, I don't want to make the assumption that all our listeners understand some of the sec requirements that, you know, have been put into place. And frankly, it, it does kind of hinder some black folks from being in that LP kind of, you know, level when it comes to, um, you know, these funds. And so what, what are y'all thoughts around like those, uh, those regulations? Go ahead. Okay. So, so um, because I know y'all thought about it. Yeah. yeah okay. <laughs> so baseline, a couple of things I want to say baseline. Uh, we just think about uh, yeah, uh, what the standard was for being an uh, angel investor uh, was typically, you know, a million dollars in assets and, or making $200,000 consecutively consecutively for two years, um, which is like pretty much probably like 1% of the, of the population, um, you know, very small percentage. Right. Um, but this, and then uh, that excludes, you know, pretty much everybody, but, but definitely anybody who's in a minority category on a whole nother level. Um, and then, and then, um, so, the, so this, so then there's that, uh, but as you mentioned, or as you guys have mentioned, you know, some of the new uh, accessibility things have happened as far as letting people invest um, in like maybe like more of a crowdfunding type of way. And that's cool. Um, but you need to think about LPs. I can't, I don't know. I actually don't know the requirements for LPs. So I'll leave it to one of you guys, maybe to, to dive a little bit more into that. But um, as far as being LPs, I know there, there might be a, a separate requirement. Um, and one thing that's interesting to note though, that in Silicon Valley, there has been many people who did not meet the requirements of a typical angel investor from a legal perspective, yet they operated like angel investors I'm not saying here, I'm not sitting here giving anybody any financial advice. 
Uh, do not take anything I say as something that you should or should not do. I just wanted to be clear that the requirements at some point to be an angel investor, um, and I believe to this day is to have a million dollars in ass assets that could be like tangible assets or I guess on paper, and then also and or and or $200,000 consecutively uh, for at least two years. Um, however, there has been many, many cases of Silicon Valley angel investors who do not meet these criteria that have done angel investments and um, um, seen returns from that. Um, and that, but that's just something that um, is kind of one of those unspoken things that happens in Silicon Valley. And I would not necessarily recommend doing that, but I would say that now there, like what Jay was saying earlier, there is um, starting to be some more accessibility as far as who can invest and how those things are structured. Um, I think the speed of it is a little slow though. So it's going to take some time for that to, to manifest. Yeah. No, I want to hit on this real quick because you, you mentioned like the LP requirements. So this is intriguing. Uh, so to be considered an LP, um, an individual, they, they also have to have uh, uh, a net worth of at least $1 million. But this, this is, this is also very intriguing too, is, uh, in a, so they can have that, a net worth, or they can have $5 million of their uh, own money and in investments, or if they're uh, doing this through like, uh, like a joint effort or whatever, together, they must have $25 million of their own money and other, or other qualified purchasers money and in investments. And so it seems like it just goes up. And then it also says, um, yeah, an LP, uh, if they don't have that, then they must hold a Series 7 or Series 62 or 65 license, which are just, you know, the different licenses you got to have to work in investment banking and things of that nature. Um, yeah, this is, I didn't know that. <laughs> All these rules. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I think this is part of the reason why people say uh, the rich get richer. Uh, in, in a lot of ways, um, the more money you make, the more opportunities to make more money appear to you. Um, and uh, in this case, for example, um, I would imagine the government is, is uh, narrative. The narrative is, uh, well, you know, the smaller guy want to protect their money. Therefore, we don't want to just allow them just to invest in anything at the risk of them losing their, like, you know, the money that they have, right? Um, which may be smaller amounts. Um, and, and so they look, they look at it as a, we're protecting like a lower class. Um, and uh, the thing is, in the protection of the quote unquote lower class who have, who have you know, um, less less money to, to, to lose or to risk, um, you're also limiting the upside, you know, um, because they don't have the ability to hop into, you know, these deals that, for example, you know, we hear about angel investments, and this is not the case for a lot of angel investments. I want to make that clear, but we do hear the case of angel investments, um, you know, uh, 40Xing, you know, uh, 10Xing, you know, like these very large, you know, um, upsides that basically are only only available to these, you know, this wealthy class of individuals that already have a lot of money, you know, so um, you can kind of see how, why people you know, have that narrative of, you know, uh, you know, the rich get richer because it, it is actually built into it. And um, it's kind of an interesting thought when you think about 
protecting people who have less, but also you're hindering them at the same time. It's a very difficult, um, I guess, thing to, to, to grasp. But, um, uh, but yeah, I just wanted to throw that out there. Now, in the book, uh, Systems Thinking, they talk about this idea of like systems trap where when you do certain things, there's always, I think you even talked about this last week, the idea of blind spots. There's always something that you may, that, that you may not intend that may end up actually, you know, it may, it may be a trap that's beneficial, such as the rich getting richer, but it also may be a trap where the poor is getting poorer. And so that's just very intriguing, but, um, not a quickly just wrap this up. What's the name? Oh, uh, definitely wrap that part up. But what's the name of that book, by the way? Because I want to, I want to read it. But I'm sure the listeners want to check that out too. Uh, Systems thinking. Cool. Is it on? Uh, it's on, I'm sure it's on. Amazon. Yes, yes, oh, it's, cool. it's on audiobook, and then uh, you can. Yeah, it's fire. Cool. Um, but yeah, this was very intriguing though too. Is uh, so um, just to quickly wrap up. So starting in the 1990s, pension funds. Uh, became the predominant way that a lot of, you know, black VCs were being funded, um, which was intriguing. I want to say that's pretty, that's still pretty much true today too. Um, and then uh, the other interesting thing was in 1990, the total amount of money that all black VCs had was $200 million. Um, and then by the start of 2000, that had grew to $2 billion. Um I'm curious what it is today, um, but that still say, doesn't. It, go ahead. When you say when you say total money, are you talking about like asset under management? Is that the number? Yes. The metric. Oh, okay. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And then it, yeah, so that grew to two two billion, and then the report just kind of wraps up, um, just high level mentioning some of the VCs that have uh, you know grew over the last few kind of years, uh, and just hinting at that. You know, we're actually seeing a, a, a growth in minority or like black VCs um, because you're starting to see a lot of entertainers, athletes, engineers, um, you know, start their own firms. And so I definitely recommend checking this out uh, just because there are a lot of black VCs on here that I was unaware of. Uh, and I just think it's, it's, it's something to know, especially if you're a builder in the space, like so you can connect with your people. And so, yeah, that's it from that. Yeah, that's yeah, a great resource. We can put that in the um, put that in the notes in the show notes so people can, ch can check it out as well as the system thinking book as well. Bet. Yeah, that that'd be great. So so look, uh, let's not spend uh, too much time on this next topic, but this is something that uh, it's, it's in relation to uh, my last uh, job before Safe, uh, and that was Berg and the uh, Micromobility Wars. Um, anybody that's familiar with that. Um, you know, there were two primary companies that were in competition or at least in the, the minds of most people, there were many competitors, but um, when you thought about micro mobility, as far as like scooters and or bikes, you typically thought about Lime and or Berg. And um, uh, Lime existed before Berg. Uh, Lime uh, was traditionally known for their line bikes. Line bikes were across uh, plenty of different places, um, and they were considered a last mile, al uh, you know, alternative to you know cars and other other vehicles that produce uh, you know a lot of gas and whatnot. Um, and uh, Bird, but Bird um, had a different angle, and that was scooters. And it just so happened that uh, with Bird, uh, that Bird chose the right. Uh, 
uh, mode of transportation to kind of bring attention to the micro mobility, you know, um, uh, narrative. Uh, you know, it, it, it mattered before, but I think what Bird did was kind of create this like, you know, brand around, you know, riding a bird, having a fun experience, you know, everybody's rode a bike, but you know, like many, there, there's many people that hadn't rode an electric scooter. Um, they had rode like maybe a razor scooter back when we were younger. I remember I used to, I used to want one of those so mm -hmm. bad. Um, uh, those were, those were, uh, those, those were, those were, those were cool. But outside of that, uh, those were the two competitors. Anyways, uh, fast forward, that was years ago, maybe five years ago, um, at the height of those, I guess, you know, war, uh, micro mobility wars and, um, bird decided to be standalone while Lime actually was, you know, uh, essentially acquired by Uber and worked directly with, you know, through Uber, which made perfect sense from Uber standpoint, um, uh, considering the fact that they are pretty much doing everything transportation, you know, to the point of they even allow you to ship packages these days. Um, and so just yesterday, or even this morning, uh, Lime reported it's- Hold on, did Uber buy Lime? Huh? Did Uber buy Lime? Yeah, yeah. Or a very large portion of it. They, uh, or a very large portion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get no. it incorrect, but they, they, there was Uber, Lime essentially went combined with Uber. Uh, I, I don't know the exact details because I don't want to be incorrect about it, but it, I would I would consider it an acquisition, you know, uh, off the top of my head. Um, and so, um, and and Bird didn't, and 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 there was many reasons why Bird didn't do that. One of the reasons was is that one uh, the, the the CEO of Bird was from Uber. He was an executive at Uber uh, previously. Um, and, uh, and also at the time, the trajectory of bird, I think from the perspective of the executives, they felt that there could be, they could, they, they could be on their own and, um, you know, be their own independent, you know, company that does very well. Um, but if I had to guess, actually, I think Lime didn't fully sell to, um, Uber, not, you know, um, they, but I think that Uber took a large stake into Lime, um, and, and then they incorporated Lime into all their products. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so Lime, uh, reported their first profitable year, um, uh, today or this week. And, um, to some people it's a shock to others. It's not some people weren't even thinking about it. Not gonna lie. I wasn't even thinking about it. Um, but what I can say is this, um, they reported their first year of a profitability, uh, profitability. They are now, uh, looking into the idea of IPO, um, which I guess would suggest that, that they didn't sell to uh, Uber fully, but they, that, that's why I had asked. Cause I was like, if they're considering an IPO, they, that they, that they didn't, but, um, uh, they did make it a, a very large deal with them. And, um, and so to, Rewind a little bit though. Bird did an uh an IPL via, via SPAC um a few years ago. Um and that's just doing an IPL in such a way where you're not like, you know, um it's not just not a traditional way of doing an IPL. You you kind of get another company 
um, to back the IPO and 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 put it publicly. Yeah, that's probably not the best way. It almost it. seems like it, it, at least from my understanding, it's almost like an index fund in a sense, where it's almost like a group of companies that were under the one spec with Bird, right? And then and then people yeah. could buy into that spec. Yes, it's 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 somewhere like that, you know, and it's so it's, it's different than a traditional IPO, and and some would argue spacs are good, some would some would say they're not. A lot of times, especially now, they're they're more so having uh, branded with scams, um, and uh, and sometimes also um, those are indicators of a of desperation, maybe for example. Because you might not be able to raise, you know, in the in the current markets for whatever reason, so you might do a spec for that reason, um, and uh, and also there's there's less uh, uh, scrutiny on the numbers and things of that nature when you go through that route, um, and so, anyways, uh, to keep it sh to 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 really like get to like the thing I think is important about this though is the strategy that I thought was interesting. So there's many things that that happened, but. Um, in this space, the biggest problems came down to just the cost of scooters, um, the distribution of scooters, the actual model behind them. You know, like, you know, we had a charger system, people had to pick up uh, bird, birds or limes and then recharge them. We had to, uh, uh, and then also, where do you place them in the morning so that they have the highest traffic? And then also, you know, making sure that the birds are, are in, are, are in op like they're operable, like and safe. And on top of that, you know, when they do churn, people need to we need to pay people to pick them up, but then also um, replace those scooters because they're churned. So not only do you buy a scooter, you know, a scooter is not unlimited. It doesn't have an unlimited life, you know. And so those meant that these were very capital intensive businesses. And so a lot of people struggled to see how any micro mobility company could to do well. And one key part that was very clever of Lime was both companies ended up focusing on building their own hardware, but at some point Bird scaled back and started to stop like spending a lot of money on the R&D, whereas Lime continues to do that. And one of the uh, things is that it's important to note here is that this one small thing actually sets a big difference in how they're able to get to profitability or and, and reduce costs. Um, and that was designing scooters that had swappable batteries. Um, that is a very, very, very uh, small, it's like seemingly small, but large impact thing that uh, affected them. I think that you would see that in a lot of the, the different reports, um, whether you look at it on you know, uh, economic times or tech fronts or whatever you see it. Um, and the reason for that is because um, originally the model was simple. You, we would have a scooter uh, or we'd have a, a, a bunch of scooters. We would put them in a certain location. Uh, people would ride them throughout the day. We would pay people to pick up these scooters at night, take them to their houses and then charge the scooters and then charge them $5 per, sorry, we would pay them $5 per scooter or something along the lines of that, you know, um, to uh, charge the scooters at their house and then uh, pay them to drop them back off at, at some location, you know, in the morning, right? And that right there actually created a scenario where one, there, were, there was lots of fraud. So there was, there was a lot of ways that people figured out how to like 
you know, charge scooters and get paid without actually never putting them back in the right place or like, or purposely putting them in places where people couldn't get, like there was a lot of different things that were un unanticipated, you know, going back to system thinking, like good intentions, but like a lot of unintended, you know, effects that we, that, that were not anticipated. So, you know, lots of lost costs there, but then also paying, you know, $5 per scooter and then also having these, like these different systems. And when in reality, think about how, once you build the technology to have swappable batteries, think about how quick that that is to go up to a scooter and swap the battery out. Cause just like, and, and then now it's just there, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a lot different and a lot less uh, labor involved. So um, that's just something I wanted to bring up um, as far as like, you know, um, the micro mobility space and, you know, I'll leave it, leave it open for questions if you guys have any, but I think it's pretty straightforward kind of showing how like uh, seemingly small things like that could make a major, major impact and can reduce costs by a large amount to the point where a business where pretty much every other competitor, you know, I'm looking at TechCrunch right now and, you know, pretty much every other competitor that you can think of, um, all like spin tier, you know, all these different ones, they all did, lay and Bird, they all did layoffs recently. Yeah. And um, turns out Lime didn't. So, um, uh, there, there's many reasons for that, but I just want to point to that one innovation being a very key thing in, in the success right there. So being more efficient and in, 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 uh, in investing, um, putting money in investing in your technology. Now, something that stood out to me, like when you're just going through those intimate uh, details was um, I remember a while back, this was when I was going through the interview process with a firm and, and Bird. One of the problems that uh, I was solving was around like their unit economics. And I remember just looking at, at that problem and being yeah, like, like yeah. yeah, I don't know if it's solvable the way y'all thinking about it because it don't make <laughs> sense. Like yeah. it, it literally in my head, I'm like, as long as there's these people charging these, like they have to charge it this way, it's not going to make sense. Yeah. And so like hearing that Lime went about it in a different way, almost despite the battery being a part of their product, it seems like what it did was it was it, they saw for an operational problem that eventually led to a lot more efficiency. It's, it's actually, and it's really dope that they, that that's how they even thought about it. Um, because it's the most, it's, it's it is like the most minute detail, but Hey, they're profitable. Now. It, it, it's Man, very minute. If I was a, if I was an investor in bird, I'd be pissed. I'm like, dude, are you serious? Like that's such an obvious thing. Like, Honestly, it's so obvious. Like, I'm not even gonna give Lime. Credit. I'm not even gonna give Lime credit. I'm not even gonna give. I'm not even gonna give the credit to that. Even though they deserve credit, I'm not gonna give them credit because it's like, yo, dude. If, if all you had to do is drive around Santa Monica doing the bird, doing the scooter hype, and see it. Like, people literally would be driving with like pickup trucks just full of bird scooters, like like stacked up to the rim, like. People be riding around with bird scooters on a back, riding on a bird scooter, or walking yeah. like Hold on. it was they insane. That, that, yeah, that scared me the most. But people be on a bird scooter with ten oh. scooters stacked on it. Yeah, they got the Amazon trucks. You remember they they people would rent their yes. own Amazon trucks and put scooters in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's that's crazy. That uh, that's crazy that bird wasn't. I, I don't know if they were focused on it or not, but it seemed like a business is so. Uh, driven by margin, it, it seemed like that would be like a, a light bulb that would eventually click like, oh shit, we should probably do swappable batteries. <laughs> you, you, you know, yo, yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> Wait, did that not that never that never came up, Ronnie? Because you used to talk to the CEO, bro. You all used to talk about the product. So that never came yeah, up. Yeah. Yo, yo, yo. <laughs> hey, when you put it like that, it is like, yeah. So, so yeah. I, I so look, so I can tell you I can tell you this. One, I'm no longer on hit on the NDA with Bird. And even if I was, I wouldn't give a fuck. So so let me <laughs> let me let me just say, uh I would say that so many things came up, but, and the thing is, is that bird at that time was scatterbrained because of the mm. speed, you know what I'm saying? I think ultimately the speed of the company made it so that we miss obvious stuff that like, that's an obvious mm. thing. Right. And, 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 you know, um, uh, I feel you, Dre, like, like you're basically saying like, look, we can all see with our own eyes that that the process was inefficient. Like, like it was very, like it was very clear, and even like Brian, the question you, you said about unit economics, yep, that was obvious. I mean, I remember I get calls from guys I respect, and even like, you know, I've been thinking about bird and economics. I'm just not understanding. Like, bird is huge, but I'm not. And I just be like, and back then I couldn't really speak that much on it. I just be like, man, look, whatever you think that is 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 what you think. Let me, let me ask you this question, Rodney. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Um, yeah. When, when, when I hear you say that, you know, the company was scatterbrained, I, I comprehend that as like, there probably, there probably was some trouble making priorities and sticking to those priorities. So focus. Very difficult. Yeah, it's very difficult. What, what did you take away from that? And how do you apply that to, you know, building safe now? I mean, I took, I took, I mean, I took so much away from that. I mean, Bird was like a, a it was an incredible blessing. I mean, even to this day, you know, the, the the things that you can take away from Bert, one thing you can't take away from Bird is that they brought attention to micro mobility. Period. You know, nobody gave a fuck about these, you know, little e bikes that are all around, like that, like Ford was putting out and I was putting. Nobody gave a fuck about that, right? You know what I'm saying? But like as you guys said, like when you came to LA, you would see bird, like you know, people riding birds, but also people picking on birds to get charged. Like it was a, it was hot for you know and and the thing is is that so you know great product great product vision great uh stuff like that but you know i think that like and great and also what uh travis and rco described as a magical experience yes 100 percent. most people's first experience with bird was a magical experience now i will say some people had some other experiences that like that that that, that, that weren't <laughs> magical but what i but ultimately though you know i think that you know sometimes people don't anticipate for a product to do well you know, in that way. And and mm -hmm. I think, you know, in their case, you know, uh, they didn't anticipate that level of success. And, and I think that when, and then, and so when it happened, they definitely uh, used that hype to their advantage. Uh, at the same time, I think it was easy to lose. I think it was, it was, it was, it was difficult because, you know, uh, there's just so many things I, I guess I would say, but like uh, it was difficult because I think there was pressure and from the sense of like, we were the first to do this as far as the scooter aspect of it. And so we were like, so we really, you know, that's one of the things about being a first mover. Like you get the benefit and you get the hype, you get all that, like, but then like the people around you that are like coming second, they get the opportunity to see where you're fucking up. You know what I'm saying? And so it's like, you know, and there's that pressure right there. And then also too, like you you you're you're the number one company at that time. Bird was the fastest growing startup to, you know, a billion dollar, you know, unicorn or whatever. And and you know, all that happening 
and you're hiring tons of people, you know, it becomes scatterbrained. And I think that like, you know, you, you, you miss a lot of important things. And by the time you have a chance to maybe even look, you know, you've already, you, you've deployed a bad model across 50 states, you know what I'm saying? And it's like, you, you can't roll that back. you like, you can't roll that back. Um, and so, um, at what, at what size of the company would you say, like the company started to like basically break down from a scatterbrained perspective? Uh, I'd probably say like, I, I would say, I would say we, we needed no more than a hundred and like 50 people. Um, mm. but we, when by the time I left, we had like hundreds of people, like, like, you know, like hundreds of people and we had a whole campus as opposed to like, you know, like a single it, office. It, yeah. Yeah. Like, like a whole, like it, we had a camp, like a campus, like, like it was like, I remember when I first joined, I mean, it wasn't. I, when, I first, when I first did my first interview, it was a WeWork office, you know what I'm saying? And then, like, my first week, we moved into, you know, like, a warehouse. And it was only so many people that could be in that warehouse. Maybe, what, like, at most, 100 people could be in that warehouse. And then by the time I left, we had a campus, like, in, in that, like you know, uh, I think the Colorado Center. Uh, so, I mean, I just think that, like, too many people, too much money moving in fast. And then also, like... uh you know, everybody wants you to move fast too. So for me, like at SAFE, I, I, I've mentioned this before, but you know, one, one of the things that we do at SAFE is we have something called No Rush. And, and and it comes from seeing that, you know, and our idea at SAFE is that, you know, uh, we, we wanted to do things with urgency. So don't get me wrong. We, we, we believe in doing things with urgency, but we don't believe in being and rushing and being reckless with our decisions, you know, um, because, you know, in that case, we saw, I saw to the extreme how like that speed that everybody wants you to move at can turn around and, and, and bite the company. You can bite your employees, your investors, and you in the end. And it's almost like you have the perfect opportunity that everybody wishes for. It's like having like the ticket and like just look like, it's like having a lot of ticket and losing it. It's like, it's like you had, like you had it in hand, you know what I'm saying? And if you could just slow down, you wouldn't have lost it you wouldn't have lost it on the subway on the way to getting the money from the gas station. You know what I'm so, saying? It's like, you know, so. Did, 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 do you, yeah. What What are your thoughts around like the, the market dynamic bird and a lot of those other micro mobility companies we're facing just because when I think about like just the, 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 the micro mobility market, the product is meant pretty much commoditized. It's, it's, it's a scooter, at least from like the, the consumer level. Right. And uh, because it's a commodity, I mean, it's a it's a perfectly competitive market. And as long as you can provide a scooter that can work and pretty much all the scooters do the same thing, people are going to go to where they get the lowest price. And so that's going to eat at profits, you know, along the way as well. Do you feel like that contributed to Bird potentially moving a lot fast? Because in a market like that, it seems like you have to you have to be the category leader to have a significant amount of market share, which. I mean, it, it, it kind of points to like their brand play and things of that grow in the brand. I think there's, uh, in my mind, and there could be multiple solutions, but in my mind, there's two primary solutions that that get away from that. And that is uh, either you take an Apple approach where Apple at some point realized that a false smartphone will be a commodity. So they had to differentiate themselves by creating a certain type of ecosystem. And Apple mm -hmm. does that well, right? Um, and then, and or, you do what Lime did and say, if you can't beat them, join them and become a feature of a of a much larger, you know, uh, 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 enterprise, you know what I'm saying? 
And so like in Lime's case, they're kind of like the, you know, they're kind of like what, what, uh, that Lime is like how I imagine OpenAI is to Microsoft, you know, it's like, that's how I kind of look at it. Like, so, you know, yeah, sure. OpenAI could be like, you know, like its own independent and figure it out by themselves. But like, you know, they aligning with Microsoft is not a bad idea and it actually makes it easier for them to, to, to get their stuff out and back their, you know, and then they could probably, yeah, it is easier for them to, to, to work with uh, Microsoft than it would be to, to be independent and doing all that. And I think that, um, you know, there, there, what there's a, there is a world where, where there's a company like OpenAI that's standalone and like, that's not like associated with anybody in particular, but, uh, it's not OpenAI and same thing with Lime, like Lime decided, Hey, let's just join the winners. Uber's a winner. And like, they want to like put a big amount of money in for a large stake. We'll do it. They'll integrate us all into all their transportation products. There's Uber East, there's Lime scooters is all, all you need. So it's like, no, that distribution like, play is crazy. I ain't gonna yeah, like, it's like, so, so, I mean, I mean, that's how, that's how it has to go. So I think people need to look at it and just, you know, pattern match that. That's all. Mm. Yeah, man. It was, it was, I'm glad I got a chance to see the, a little bit of the behind the scenes up close when, when you got a bird, it was, yeah. a, it was a wild, wild west, man. Seriously. <laughs> like in Santa Monica, like. Yeah. Everybody was looking at Burr and it was like, damn, they going crazy. Like they about to be the next. And yeah, it was it was just it was it was nuts, man. Especially the founder too, like with his background coming yeah. from Lyft. I think he worked at Lyft. He also worked yes. at Uber. Yeah. Like, it it was just like yeah, exactly. The narrative, the perception yeah. of the yes. narrative was very, very strong <laughs> in Santa Monica at that time. Like it was like he was like a god, like almost like in a sense, like other founders really looked to him uh, and, and not, and you know, not to say they shouldn't, he was obviously super successful, but yeah. I just remember that t that was a, that was a moment in time in history that it's yeah. like, you, you don't get a chance to be that close to, to companies that have that type of momentum and that type of consumer pull with a yeah. physical product, product market fit. Is, that yeah, product to be up and close and personal to that it was, it was, it was yeah. wild, man. Yeah. Seriously, seriously. So, um, yeah. So I guess, look, for founders, take for every founder you see, take the good and the bad. There are things Travis did good, things that he didn't do good, and just you know, just take it for what it is. You know what I'm saying? We all we all founders at the end of the day. So you know, there's yeah. things that uh, he, there's things he did real good, you know, and there's some things that he didn't. So that's all. But I want to say this too because you dropped a cheat code last week when I was listening to the to the to our past episode mm -hmm. that I feel like we didn't even call it a cheat code, but it was. And essentially, the way the best way I would sum it up is: before you go knock down the fence, understand why the fence was put up in the first place. And so, going back to what you were just saying around, like you know, yes, Travis can make some good decisions; he can also make some bad decisions. As you're like, if you're a founder out there listening and just learning from other founders' decisions. Don't judge it good or bad until you understood the context around why they would even make that decision. I feel too That's often right. we're very we're very quick to just like, oh, I wouldn't do that. You don't know that. Yeah, you know yeah, that. yeah. I feel you. Yeah, I feel you yeah. on that. Yeah. Yep. yeah you so, don't know. Yeah, I feel that. Yeah. But yeah. Uh yeah. So I know you have something you wanted to uh, get into, Dre. Yeah, we we can, but I know you, you said you had a hard stop, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I gotta I gotta I gotta have to yeah. We could just put, we could just wrap it up then. Let's just push it to next week. It's all good. That just mean I don't have to prepare for next week. I'm already ready to go. <laughs> all right, all right, cool. <laughs> That's all I mean. Cool. cool. All right, cool. Y'all. This was a good one. Then. 
Yeah. All right. All right. We'll talk again uh next week. All right, y'all. All right, y'all.